you wake up every morning and you work so hard for what? For what? To take care of your family, to have great finances, and to live the life that you really want, right? Well, that the foundation of all of that is our personal finances. And today I talk to the personal finance coach himself, Eric Simonson, and we get into the seven personal finance secrets, the questions that you and I have, that you and I want to ask, but it's not just evident on a Google search. How do you actually take a piece of debt and restructure it? Do you actually use an IRA? Do you do matching? Do you not match? Do you buy a car or do you lease a car? Do you get life insurance? Do you get term or whole life? Do you have an interest account, a savings account? What do you actually do with the personal finance infrastructure that is going to give you the foundation to put money away and create a life that you want because you work so hard every single day? These are the seven personal finance secrets with Eric Simonson, and it starts right now. One thing is for certain, just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this, where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to, how to grow your business. How to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Srivatsa, and welcome to Business School. So Eric, you talk to a, a lot of people that want support and help with money, structure, uh, what's on their mind, because there's this very... Um, I think finance is super personal for people and they don't really open up a lot uh, to others. And when they talk to you, I bet you get a wide gamut of questions today. What is like, what's, I always ask people what's working right now, but what are you getting asked right now more than anything else? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you totally hit on it. You know, personal finance is exactly that. It's extremely personal. You know, money is such a stressor for a lot of people. And so right now, I think what I'm getting asked the most is the stressors that people are being affected by. So it's a lot of, hey, Eric, I don't know if I'm saving the right amounts for retirement. I don't know if I'm saving into the right buckets. You know, I know my work offers a 401k. I've also heard about this thing called a Roth IRA. Yeah. Which one's better, right? I just don't, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the skill to know what I should do first. So I get a lot of questions about that. I get a lot of questions around, hey, Eric, I feel... Like my student loan debt is crushing me. There's got to be something different I can do here. I know with I know with these different COVID-related legislations that are getting passed, I know there's some student loan relief. What does it mean for me? Yeah. So I think it's just a lot of questions that people are they don't they don't know who to ask, and because again, money's so personal, they don't want to just ask their friends because they don't yeah. necessarily want their friends to know that they don't know what they're doing. Totally. So I think that I get a lot of um, just, hey, Eric, help me kind of look at the whole picture and figure out step A, B, C I should take to really get on track. Yes, it's such a great, uh, you hit on something which I think is um, a big stumbling block for a lot of people. And I call this kind of the, the pain of the first step, right? It's, they don't know the, what is that first thing to do a lot of times. And I think for us, uh, whether you're, you know, coaching, consulting, whether it's business, whether it's personal finance, uh, the sequencing seems natural in what you and I do in our worlds, but the sequencing is what um, causes stress for a lot of people. So when you get asked that question of, hey, I've got, I feel semi-disorganized. I, I know I need to do a bunch of things. What should I do first? I know the answer is it depends, but uh, in your world, so if you had to say, hey, these are a couple of things that I would actually start off with, what do you like to kind of go to first? Yeah, perfect. So you're right, right? Caveat on, on everything is everyone's situation is unique. But what I say specifically when it comes to, we'll take the retirement piece. Yeah. There's, there's a clear winning formula. And that is number one, if you have a 401k, contribute into the 401k up to the full company match. Mm -hmm. So if you know, if they say, hey, if you put in 6%, we'll give you 3%, bare minimum, do that, right? Because that's free money. You don't want to leave that on the table. Once you've done the amount to your 401k to get the match, then usually it makes sense to go invest into a Roth IRA. 
if your income is eligible to do that. So uh, contribute the max to the Roth IRA, you know, get that up to, I believe this year at $6,000. Then, uh, then once you've done that, you still have money to invest, then go back to the 401k and dial that thing up to the max. So, you know, if that means putting in 23, 24, 25% of your income and you're able to do that, great, do that. You're gonna get some real tangible tax benefits for that. If you still feel like you have capacity after that to be saving, <laughs> which at that point you get a gold star from me, um, then it usually makes sense to open up what's called just a, a non-qualified or a taxable. A lot of people just consider this as just a regular investment account. Um, where that you know that you're going to incur different types of taxation but it's again a, a good diversifier in your retirement bucket so yeah. you know that's kind of one two three and most people most people with their cash flow are able to do the 401k up to the mac match and then they're able to do the roth and then kind of make some headway in the 401k but not quite max it out altogether yeah um can you talk to the non-employee uh, if, if you're a business owner, entrepreneur, you don't have a four hundred and one k program. How, yep. What is their path? Yeah. So non-employees. So it, that's where it gets fun because you've got you've got even more of a multi multitude of options. So um, you can do what's called a SEP SEP IRA, um, which typically the SEP IRA makes a ton of sense if your if your business profit is over about $70,000 a year you'll be able to defer more into that one um, the rules on that are you can contribute up to 25% of your profit to a SEP IRA um, the drawback is if you have employees um, you do have to be mindful of making sure you're contributing on their behalf as well and that can get pretty spendy um, if you're deferring a ton to your own SEP IRA then you have to defer a ton to their sub IRAs as well. So, you know, that can be a good and a bad thing, but you gotta be mindful of that. So SEP IRA is, is usually a good option for the higher income um, small business owners. You also can do a, obviously a 401k. You can set up a 401k for your business. If you're a solo entrepreneur, you can do what's called a um, individual 401k. Um, also like an, it's called an IK or a solo 401k. Um, and what's cool about that plan is it's like a one person 401k, but you can add the Roth feature to it. So if you're like, you know what, I wanna just have tax-free um, asset growth, you can set up a, a solo Roth 401k and contribute the max to that. There's also a simple IRA, you know, S-I-M-P-L-E. That one um, doesn't quite have as much benefit as those first two, um, but that could be a good one for kind of a small business with five to seven employees where you still want to do something for your employees. Right. Um, want to do the, you know, the crazy $20,000 a year that you do um, to a set for them. Yeah. Um, one of my, I have a really good, I have a really good CPA. It's one of those, you know, I, um, I think you and I shared offline that I've been fortunate to, I've had my broker dealer licenses. I've been, I've done the CFA, the CFP, all of that worked on wall street and one of the big lessons that I learned was even when my investment banking clients sold businesses, et cetera, nothing would happen unless they got the sign off from their CPA first. Yes. And I realized it was kind of like worth your weight in gold. And so I have an amazing CPA and he always tells me this, which is very cool. He's like, hey, the one question you should always ask me, even if I forget, which he never forgets, but he's like, the one question you should always ask me before I tell you to write a check to the IRS is, hey, what happens? Like, can you give me the formula for how much I can put in my SEP before this math happens. And most yes. CPAs can just hit a button on their software and tell you, hey, you Absolutely. owe $100,000 in taxes, but instead of paying $100,000 to the IRS, you can put 57 into the SEP to yourself. Yep. And, and so my, um, the one question, I always tell business owners this, before you do quarterly payments or before you pay year end taxes, just ask your CPA, hey, like if I were to write a check to myself, myself like what should that be and does it help in any way what do you yes. think about that i think that is 100 percent accurate i would say all of my uh high income business business owner clients that is routine come you know april 12th it's hey get your sep number get this money in your sep ira drive your you know your earned income down below your tax bill that's a i think an absolute no-brainer the other one though that often i think gets overlooked because it's a much smaller amount is hsa so you do have until April 15th to also fund your HSA for the prior year. 
And most people think HSA is something that you have to contribute through payroll, but you can actually just cut a check to it one time in you know March, April for the previous year to, you know, it saves a couple thousand at the end of yeah. the year. Um, but yes, those are those are two really good um, tax saving, you know, kind of like afterthought tax saving ideas. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's continue on the taxes stuff. I think this is um, uh, the stuff that people don't talk about a lot, but you you're like, hello, you should be thinking about this stuff. Yes. Um, two 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 things that come about, and I know that folks that especially who have um, who are homeowners, and I think the way the where rates are today. Uh, there's a lot of question around, hey, should I should I get an interest-only loan? That's a very interesting thing because you get a 5-1 arm, you're paying 3%. Like on a million-dollar loan, it's a 3000 a month. I mean, it's, it's pretty fascinating if you can pull off something like that. And then you've got this whole, you know, 30-year, I want the stability of a 30-year versus 15-year. So I know you have a lot of conversations related to interest-only, 15-year, 30-year. Even if people don't have a home right now, I think this is a valuable conversation for them because they're thinking, hey, I may be able to kind of uh, swap my rent into a buy if this may even work in this time. So um, some thoughts around like mortgage as a a whole. Yeah. So so, uh, this is probably the most common, um, I don't want to say mistake, but this is probably the most common thing where I have to kind of have clients take a step back and rethink this where I feel like overwhelmingly people want to pay off their mortgage as quick as possible. So they will, they will either just straight up get a 15 year or they'll have a 30 year and they'll try to pay it down quicker. And yeah, that probably made sense 15 years ago when mortgages were seven, 8%. But right now you can get a, you know, a 30 year fixed for under three, which is unbelievable. Right. Right. And so what I tell clients is, is basically it's, it's math, right? If you have a 30 year fixed loan and it's at, let's just say for easy math, 3%. And let's say that you've got other deductions that allow you to itemize your deductions. And so that mortgage interest is actually also a tax deduction for you. Right. Then your true effective cost is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2% a year for yeah. that loan. And, and the question becomes, if you're going to put extra money towards that loan to pay it off quicker, then yeah, essentially you're guaranteeing a 2% rate of return. Do you think you can do better on other investments? Do you think you can do better on, you know, even cash or CDs that probably long-term well earn more than that? I mean, there's pretty much every other asset class is going to earn more than 2% over a 30 year time frame. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to pay it off sooner. Um, the other thing too is, I mean, you think about, let's say somebody's putting an extra $500 a month towards their mortgage to pay it off quicker to, you know, again, earn 2%, if they would just put down their 401k, just the tax benefit alone yeah. of what they're going to get is going to way outweigh that 2% you know, yeah. cost. So I, I always tell my clients, do a 30-year fixed right now, right? Do a 30-year fixed. Um, there are some very, um, you know, one-off circumstances where maybe somebody is going to retire in 12 years and they just can't afford that monthly payment in retirement. So then we have to prioritize paying it off sooner. But for the most part, it's get a 30 year, make that the very, very last thing you pay off. Like once every other <laughs> is online and met, yeah. then, uh, you know, then pay that off. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to speak to interest only for a sec. So, you know, the, the other interesting thing is, Interest only loans and arms. I mean, those obviously for a lot of reasons got a bad reputation. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what's so fascinating is the average time someone stays in their house is seven years. Yeah. And so arms, when, when you know it's going to be a fairly short-term, you know, living situation and you can get an arm, you know, five, one arm for like, 2% or 1.875 you know, yeah. or something ridiculous. Yeah. It might, it might be a good bet to take if you know, if you know pretty confidently, you're not going to really live that much past when that thing starts adjusting. Yeah. And I also think that um, it, it uh, for folks that there's a, if you are in a, um, in an environment similar to like where I live in Southern California, where, uh, there is a significant disparity between call it rents and home values. Like there's a, we, based on supply and demand, we appreciate faster than most of the country, historically speaking, we also get hurt in the, in the downturns, but, but if you take the arms, 
one, you get 100% write-off based on your incomes. At least you get a significant write-off on that, on the full interest amount, which is, yeah. which is, a, which is, a, which is mind-blowingly amazing when people don't realize that. Yeah. Um, and the second is that, if, like you said, Eric, if they're only there for five to seven years, like just on the equity, um, kind of equity alpha, equity appreciation, you're like, that's, that's not just leverage one time, that's leverage over seven years on equity growth. So it's worth running the numbers and not being stuck on, hey, I need to get a 30 year fixed at all times. Yes, correct. And, and you know, the other thing that's made um, home ownership more compelling in the last couple of years is the fee compression we're seeing around real estate sure. um, transaction costs, you know, where, where there's just been such an, you know, an influx of flat fee listing and, you know, 2%, 1% uh, commission on listings where the cost of actually switching homes isn't as great as it used to be, which I think is, is encouraging more people to switch homes more often, sure. which then also encourages these, these kind of shorter term yeah. So Eric, how does, um, so let's say somebody so just, just bring this to life. Let's say someone is like, Hey, I, I bought a home five years ago. I, I'm paying five and a half, which is still amazing. I have a five and a half percent 30 year fixed. Um, people are talking about this being historically lowest ever rates. Uh, I have never done anything like a, like an interest only, uh, product. I may or may not move in the next five to seven years. I clearly I have a very unique situation. If if that person is thinking that way, where do they go? Like, is this a mortgage banker conversation? Is this a mortgage broker conversation? Do I walk into my local Bank of America? Like, what do you suggest as the next step to understand kind of product fit for them? Yeah, so I'm a little biased because usually that's a conversation that comes through me first, right? right? To have yeah. to say, hey, based on your goals, based on your situation, this is what I think. Um, but if somebody didn't have, you know, a financial planner in their life, then usually mortgage brokers are going to be, in my opinion, a better resource than just walking into, you know, your Bank of America, because your Bank of America is going to be captive to just Bank of America rates, sure. right? Versus a broker at least can look at five, seven, ten different banks that their company works through. Um, you know, brokers, I think... You, try to give, give advice around, Hey, for you, I think, I think you should look at a 15 or you should look at a 30, you should, you know, look at an arm, but, um, they don't often, I think, get into the super weeds around that client's real specific goals. Right. And for your example, you know, if you've got somebody that thinks they're going to live in house for five to seven years, gosh, if it's not a concrete thing, if it's not like a, yeah, my life goals in five years, I'm moving, I'm doing this. It's, it's typically better to be a little bit on the safer side, especially with the rate environment and to look at doing a 30. Yeah. Um, then, then saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do a five, five year just farm. Yeah. Um, but yes, mortgage broker, I would say would be a good, or financial planner would be a good resource to just start having that conversation. Yeah. And this, this also brings us to a good point where just as a, you know, I'll, I, I talk about with even CEOs I mentor who make, uh, you know, lots of zeros on their on their tax returns is a big uh, a big component of this I call this the money coach concept which is not a I don't need somebody to tell me what to do with my money per se because you're talking to a business owner that has runs a hundred million dollar business I think they have a good sense of like how to allocate risk how to build their wealth they they, they may not know the exact details but they can, they have enough of a sense of it, but what they don't have, and which I, which I hope that everybody listening, and I hope you will underscore this, is I think there's this, this gap, which we talked about early, which is they don't, very few people have someone they can talk to freely about money. Just, that's just not there. And I'd actually say um, two thirds of families, partners, business partners, as well as life partners are probably not on the same page. Like my wife and I rarely talk about money, which is, which is, and she's way smarter than me too, which is, which is interesting. Um, and so I love your kind of thoughts around this. Maybe you call it someone else, but I think there's this, if I don't, if I can't talk about money freely, like I'll give you, a, I'll be very vulnerable. Um, my parents, um, our common friend, Nana knows is really well. My parents sold everything that they had um, when I was a child in India to, to unlock this opportunity for me to come to the U S like they literally sold everything that they had. And I left India when I was 16 years old, but my parents have no idea 
how much I have ever made, how much I've sold any business for. We've never, like my parents and I, to this day, my parent, my dad will say things like, hey, are you okay? It's COVID. Do you need some money? Like, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which I appreciate a lot. And I have a really good relationship with my parents. I have a fairly good relationship with the money, but I never talked to my parents about anything money related, especially what I'm making. So my big question for you is, what have you seen happen to clients when they're able to open up and talk freely about in a non-judgmental way about money? Gosh, that is such a great question. And that is honest, honest, honestly, that's probably my absolute favorite thing about my job. You know, it is, is that it is the fact that when I interest, so financial advisors and marriage counselors, I heard this one time, they share like 35 of 36 different job traits. So like the only one that's different is money. It's like money management, but like 35 of the 36, like, you know, compassion and empathy and all of that is the same. And so there is so much of that in my job of just taking a husband and wife, you know, you know, two partners and that are on different pages with potentially different goals and some resentments and some, you know, bad feelings around money and getting them into a safe space to have a, you know, an unbiased, non-judgmental conversation and i will say how it typically ends up going is the first year is harder because there's a lot of just working through changes right working through behavioral changes working through getting on the same page with goals but then it's just it's magic what happens like families grow stronger they grow grow, grow closer together um i mean i don't I don't want to overstep it here, but I'd say there's more love. Like I just, I hear this all the time from the clients of mine who worked with, worked with me for a long time that like, it's been a huge life-changing thing for them to just feel a lot less stress and a lot more empowerment around their money and their goals. Yeah. So absolutely what you're saying, I think is so true to just have somebody in your life, whether or not it's a financial planner, if it's just a, a, a confidant, a trusted friend, somebody that you can communicate to openly, um, it adds so much, so much to your life. I think. Yeah. I, and, and this is one of those times where I actually will say a, it is important to have a professional uh, who is a third party because it, by the very nature of that, there is no judgment. <laughs> right. And so it's because it, I'll, you say, yes, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll call my uncle who is an, who's an attorney for some advice on this document or it's thousand by cool. That's fine because they have your best interest in mind. That's fine. But when you have this third party, the perspective and the judgment, like as soon as you remove judgment, you literally see better energy, which is super, super powerful. Right. Um, let's, one of the things, whenever I think about judgment, I think we, there's a lot of self judgment that people get when, uh, especially in the U.S. or in the Western world about debt. And I bet you have a lot of conversations just around debt. And, and you may have seen things like, how did you even start accumulating? Like, what is this? Like, how, how, are, how do you make $200,000 a year and you've still not paid off your $13,000 student loan? Like, how does that work? And so uh, I'd love for your thoughts around, uh, one, what is this, what is the psychology of people that when they come to you, this burden that they feel around debt, maybe even shame sometimes. And second is people have always talked to me about the sequencing of, Hey, what do I pay off first? And if you could kind of like talk to that, that would be awesome. Yeah. So I think the first thing that, that I hear a lot is people want to know how they compare, which I think is so interesting. Like if somebody comes to me and they have $70,000 of credit card debt, they're always like, is this normal? <laughs> like they just want to know, like, am I do, am I, am I doing awful? Am I doing really good? Like, where do I stand? And so I think people right off the bat, I always get comfort in knowing like, it's not, like hearing a professional say, it's not that bad. Like I've seen worse, right? They're like, okay, thank God. Like I'm not the worst. Um, the other thing too, is I think people like knowing that it's not their problem anymore. Like if you got this weight on your shoulders of $70,000 of student loan debt that you've been carrying around with you for 10 years and you just, you're trying to make headway, but you don't exactly know what you're doing. And all of a sudden you meet with a professional, they understand you, they've done it in the past. It's like, oh, thank God, there's somebody else now that can help me with it. It's just this nice relief for them. Um, and then, yeah, and then it's just a matter of, of understanding how much debt they have, what the interest rates are, what type of debt it is how their other goals look in terms of are they saving up for retirement? Um, 
you know, are they saving up for their kids' education, all these, all these different goals. And then depending on if, if they have extra money to throw at it, which usually they will, we just start attacking it. And um, one of the, I think the most powerful things on how to tackle debt is if, especially right now, I'll speak to COVID. So right now, so many people across the US and a handful of my clients are experiencing either total income loss or partial income loss. Yeah. And what's happening though is they're still finding ways to get by, right? They're they're adjusting, they're not traveling as much, they're not going out to eat as much, um, they're not buying things quite as much as they maybe were, so they're making it work. And what I'm telling them, and I think this is a great takeaway for your listeners, is when the income is restored and you have more money now to then kind of go back to life as usual, capture that and 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 use it towards your debt like if it's a thousand dollars a month if it's two thousand dollars a month think of the headway you can make towards your debt towards your goals if you keep your other spending the same as it as it currently is and just throw all that money towards great other things yeah i think that's such an immensely powerful thing but it's such a hard psychological thing to do but if you can do it like you're going to be just a complete boss like you will you will crush your goals have you had tactically speaking have you had any luck with um using kind of strategies like a like a lending club or something like that to go kind of borrow from peter to pay paul to to arbitrage the rates and and see if you can restore credit scores and things like that or what's your thought around managing that yeah, haven't done a ton of that. Um, the what what I've done is I've kept it more in house. So um, l- looking at getting you know home equity loans to right. pay off student loans, cash out refinancing, um, you know refinancing student loans themselves. Um, yeah, haven't haven't explored the kind of peer to peer lending. I know I mean I know it exists. I've looked into it, but I just clients haven't had an appetite to do it. I think just because of the you know the unknown and the newness of it but that could be a bigger player moving forward for sure i think what you just said though the the two things uh number one is just knowing that you have the option of looking at an existing asset that you have maybe uh using the current rate environments to say hey i i'm paying credit card debts at you know 23 percent compounded uh and i can get a heloc or a second on my on my house for whatever it may be the math gets you don't even like you don't even have to run a spreadsheet it's a no-brainer yeah yeah uh, but there are op- there are options, and the the second option that you meant is I think that if if folks either the, the the listener or they know someone in their family that they've heard talk about student debt, I think one thing that you said was cool, which was hey there is probably a restructuring refinancing option available for something like this because a lot of those people have outsourced them to servicers and things like that who will gladly re will gladly restructure your debt because they want to get paid in some way and they'll make it a win win for you and um, is that is that a common conversation that you have where you see a bundle of debt where you go and say, hey, you can go refinance this or restructure this in some way? Um, it's almost automatic. Every conversation, that's that's step one, awesome. is let's figure out how to re-optimize this debt. Um, and, and you're absolutely right that lenders would prefer uh, to get paid something versus nothing. Right. So um, I've, I've had clients, as crazy as it sounds, I've had clients have success with calling and getting their rates lowered. Sure. Um, I've had clients have success calling and getting p- portions of the debt forgiven, depending on the situation, just by yeah. making a call, you know, and it, it being nice and, and explain your situation. It just, I think you nailed it. Just being nice is the, yeah. It, yeah, it's like, please, can I help me with this? I'm struggling with this. I've lost my job. Just being nice. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I think my my friend told me, I don't know if you know, if, if you've ever worked at a, um, uh, a call center where like my friend ran, runs a call center and they have these uh, script paths, which are very cool. And he basically say, for example, every year I call my cable company. I really hope my cable company's not listening. Every year at Christmas, I call my cable company every year. Right. And I, I generally do, I got to find this uh, call. I generally do it live. So I'll hit record. I'll do it on, on speaker. Cause no one believes me. And I'll literally call and it's the same script every time. Hey, Merry Christmas. I hope your family's doing well. By the way, uh, we're looking at our bills and um, my wife was, you know, my wife's really mad that we're getting all of this. Can you help me? That's the first one. Whenever you say spouse. This is so, this is so creepy. I have the exact same script. It's always, my wife is super angry at this. She wanted me to call like, is there anything we can do? 
Dude, every year I do the exact same thing. Every year, right? And the, and my friend told me that's a script. If you, they say spouse, right? You don't want to be the wedge between the relationship, so they'll find a way to solve it, right? Exactly. And that's then, so crazy. Yeah. And the second script, by the way, if they don't say that when they restructure it for you, you can say, uh, Eric, thank you so much. I, I don't think I can afford this new. If you use the word afford, mm. literally, it's another it's another script tree, and that goes down like a bunch of new set of offers. Okay. And, and so it's the same script every time. And it's a two minute phone call. I spend more time waiting on the phone tree than actually doing the call. And every time, every year it gets reduced every single time. So are you, question though, are you calling the main 1-800 number or are you calling the specific retention line? Like the, I'm calling the 1-800 number and going through press one for this, press two for this. So you're not going straight to the, I want to cancel my service. Uh, just asking for help. No, I'm not. Oh, was, see, this yeah. is my play, right? So, yeah. so if you call the, like, I want to cancel my, my internet and phone service. Then you get to the real, the real slick deal makers, right? You yeah, want yeah. to keep that business and get compensated. I think I keep in that business. Yeah. So that's, that's where I got to get the. Dude, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's so awesome. Um, one topic that I get um, stumped on a lot and I actually think you need a lot. I mean, someone like you knows this stuff inside out. We get, we get pitched life insurance, Oh God. It's yes. nonstop. And by the way, I actually have really good life insurance advisors. Um, and I have pre-existing health conditions. So it's like, I have a bunch of weird stuff, but talk, what's yeah. the high level view on life insurance? Yeah. So I, um, it's interesting, you know, I, the way my business is structured, I don't get paid on commissions. I don't get paid on any sort of selling any products. And so I tell my clients all the time, like my job is just to make sure, make sure some salesperson doesn't come along and sell you a life insurance policy you don't need. Like I'm just kind of trying to protect my clients. And, you know, I, I don't want to say there's a one size fits all here, but most of the time, simple term insurance makes the most sense. Yeah. So buying life insurance at a flat death benefit amount for a specified period of time, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, um, what often happens is people get sold policies that are permanent, that are designed to last until death. Those are way more expensive. And as you would imagine, way more profitable to whoever's selling it to, to that person. Um, but the reason I always recommend term insurance is not just the cost is so much lower, but it's because people's life insurance need goes down every year. So it, it's you know an inverse relationship with net worth. Right. The more the more your net worth is, the more you're on track for your goals, the more life insurance you need, because if something happens to you, your family is going to be better protected. So usually a you know, 20 year term, depending on the age, you know, getting you close to retirement is about all you need, because at that point, gosh, you should be on track for your goals. You should. <laughs> everything should be lined up where if something happens to you, it's not going to be devastating yeah. for the family. Yeah. And, and I would say that it, um, so working with a you know, working with a professional like you, you get to actually say, okay, hey, if we were to do, if we go to go and invest in a life insurance product like this, we're doing it for these reasons. If we don't want to do that, then we can almost have a proxy where you still put away, instead of writing a $1,000 check into your permanent policy, you can write a $1,000 check into your SEPIR account or whatever other account, and that still gets compounding over time. It's, yeah, it's the old um, uh, buy term and invest the difference, right? You could buy perm or you could buy term and invest the difference in premium. And usually the math works out better in that favor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously there's going to be circumstances where people have legacy goals where, you know, I want to leave $3 million to each of my kids. Right. And so then it's better to leverage insurance to do that than buying, you know, than, than trying to build up your assets and, and invest your way there. Um, so there's, there's obviously circumstances where permanent insurance makes more sense, but for younger, still, you know, accumulating clients, definitely term. Let's, um, you talked about children. This is a, I, I think there's not a lot of education around, hey, when your child is born, do this. And people, the favorite thing that people always say is, hey, when child's born, at least in the U.S., you have a 529 plan. And literally, that's the gift that you get on the day you were born. Put the, have a target date fund, put $112 into it, and that's it. And and then. Literally, that's better than nothing. I'm, I'm going to assume that. Uh, when it comes to children, how do you, I, I bet 
like children, you could probably do like a masterclass just on children, but what are the three, four things that especially folks with young children can do now, which is not super expensive, like a few hundred dollars a month or whatever it may be that provides for really good long-term results? Yeah. So, um, this is again, one of the most common things to get asked is, Hey, what, what's the best thing to do for my kids? Um, I will say a lot of people don't, don't necessarily want it to have to be used for education. That's a big thing. People want to save for their kids' education, but they don't want to be in, you know, paying a bunch of fees and taxes if they don't go to school. So here's, here's how the conversation usually goes. So 529 plans still typically do make sense to use to some extent. Um, they've become a lot better in the past couple of years than they used to be, where now you can, you can use them for K through 12 in addition to college. Um, they're a lot more flexible in terms of what, what qualifies as an education expense. You can use it for you know, a new computer for school, um, lots of different things there. So most clients having some savings going to a 529 plan makes sense um, because you get, depending on the state, depending on your income, there's either a tax deduction or a tax credit you get for saving to a 529 plan. And the 529 plan grows tax-free when used for college. So those are just all good things to, you know, use. But the biggest drawback for a 529 plan is, again, if they don't go to school at all, you have to pay a penalty and taxes on the gains. The other big drawback is, and this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but when you go to apply for financial aid, you know, remember doing the old FAFSA, mm -hmm. um, 529 plan assets are considered um, you know, specific college assets that have to be used, right? So it, it limits your aid a little bit. So another conversation I typically have is um, having clients use a portion of their Roth IRA and kind of earmarking that for school because it's still gonna be tax-free. They're still gonna be able to pull it out tax-free, um, you know, as long as they're not pulling out the gains, which at that point you show they aren't. Um, and the big benefit is it doesn't have to be used for school. And it's not going to hurt them at all from a financial aid standpoint because it's considered a parent retirement asset, oh, got it. Um, which I just think is so interesting. Um, also, you know, you might, this is probably something your CPA has talked to you about, but you can always uh, pay the kids for modeling or whatever, you know, whatever skill they have and um, fund a Roth IRA for them. So right. you can you know, plow money into that, which is, which is fantastic because that can be used for college as well. Um, those are probably the two main ones. Um, there used to be a Coverdell, well, there still is a Coverdell IRA, but that that really has lost its its benefit um, because of the Fox One plan enhancements over the year, right. over the past few years. Um, there's you know the common one where people go set up a bank account in the kid's name. Um, that is one I typically steer people away from because mm -hmm. when depending on their state, when either the kid turns 18 or 21, that money legally becomes the kids and they can do whatever they want. They can go buy a Mustang and go, you know, they can blow it and you don't have any say on it versus the 529 plan and the Roth, at least it's still you know, retained by, by the parent. Um, so those are probably, I mean, I could keep going and going and going, but those are probably the biggest ones I, I most often talk about. What do you think about um, life insurance for children? A lot of people say, Hey, start early. You can buy a permanent policy early for these children. It's super cheap. They don't need a medical, you know, kind of whatever. Uh, yeah. How does, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, first it always makes me a little sad because it's just a, like a, yeah, it's just a weird, a weird deal. But um, I, you know, again, there, there's going to be the one off where it makes sense, but I usually tell clients don't do it. You know, the, the child has no insurable need. And if they do, um, you know, if, tragically, if they pass away, you're, you have the assets, you have the, you know, the ability to pay for burial and funeral. Like you don't need this $10,000, $20,000 benefit. Um, you know, as far as a tax-free play, you know, if, if you're setting up a child policy in order to put money into it for it to grow tax-free over the years, again, I just look at the fees inside that whole life policy or that permanent policy. Um, and I look at what if instead you just set up a, you know, a stock account or investment account and had that grow and even accounted for capital gains, usually you're going to be better off. Yeah. Um, one thing that uh, for some reason, uh, 
everybody gets stumped on this, which I think is fascinating. Um, and I bet you get asked this question a lot is, in at least in the modern world, we all drive in some way. And uh, there are conversations around kind of the, hey, I only buy a certified pre-owned, you know, Audi. Like that's my, because it's certified and pre-owned and lot, you know, you lose depreciation when you drive it off the lot. That's like the favorite grandpa saying, right? Like, hey, your car is worth 50% when you drive it off the lot. Then you have the whole, hey, listen, I from a status perspective, I always want to get a new car because I'm not handy with my cars. The last thing I want in my car is breaking down. I'm going to pay my $500 a month anyway. I might as well just lease. It's an expense. Um, for some reason, is there a, what is the thought process around just for someone to think about buying versus leasing a vehicle? Yeah, you're right. It's a common question. Um, if you're going to own the, obviously if you're somebody that wants a new car every three years, it's hard to argue against leasing. <laughs> Financially, I would tell you probably not your best play, but if that's just who you are and what you, how, how you want your lifestyle to look, then leasing typically makes sense. If you're going to own a car for six to seven years, then yeah, then there's, then there's probably an argument to be made to really run the numbers and see which one makes sense. Um, I, yeah, there's no one size fits all. Um, the one thing that I think is interesting though, is to your, you know, your grandpa point, right? Buy a certified pre-owned. If you're going to drive a car into the ground, right? If you're going to drive a car until it's worth a thousand bucks, that argument loses some of its, you know, its efficacy because it, it just, you're not, you're not going to really lose that much buying a new car versus a certified pre-owned if you're not going to ever try to sell it for an, you know, as an asset. Hmm. Um, so sometimes I do have clients that want to buy new and we run the numbers and it just, it, it actually ends up being a slightly better deal. It's still not, it's not obviously not perfect, but a better deal than you would think than, than buying a two-year-old car. Yeah. Have you ever, um, have you ever worked with like a car broker? Uh, like, a Carvana type or like, yeah. So, um, so I, I have an awesome friend. He, um, he runs a, uh, you know, he's a kind of concierge car broker. You call him and be like, Hey, I'm looking for yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, this. And it's pretty like the cool model because I didn't realize I, none of us know this stuff, but I didn't realize that let's take easy numbers. If it's a hundred thousand dollar car, I'm just using a hundred because for easy math, uh, let's say there is a most dealers, kind of bake in a $5,000 marketing fee for that car. So if you go to a car broker and so my buddy, Scott, he's amazing. I literally called him. I'm like, Hey, my wife wants this. And he goes, awesome. I'll negotiate the deal. And I will like, we will personally drive it to your driveway and give you the tour. Like it's amazing. It's an amazing service and you get, you don't have to pay for anything of it. And I never realized this, Eric, but it was mind blowingly stress-free experience. Uh, where you just call and they, and then he tells you, he's like, Hey, here's how I get paid. And um, I negotiated this deal and I'm going to give you half this back or whatever it is. And it was, it was mind blowing to understand the mechanics of how a dealer gets paid. Um, so if uh, don't you're, you know, kind of off the, I, yeah, thoughts, I, I think that's a absolutely great tip for, for the listeners. And I think that that speaks to just the changing environment too, where, People don't want, I think people don't want to be sold. They don't want to feel like they're being sold something. Right. They don't want to feel like it's a stressful, you know, sales pitch environment. Um, I mean, Tesla, you know, you go buy your Tesla. On the I, you know, I, I bought in 2016, I bought a Model S in my pajamas, you know, at 11 PM, right? Like it was great. Uh, you just, that I think is what people want. And so this, this car broker, if that helps make it a better experience, then it's going to be successful, especially if you don't pay for it. Yeah. I mean, I, you're right. Like I, the number one reason why I, I got my, my model is literally that I had to talk to nobody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pick the option, pick the color, click buy. Like literally that's all I did. And it was the most amazing, just, just not having to go to the dealership with, and I had never different Tesla before. I just, I just said, this is what I want. And I just, it's pretty amazing actually. And then, then did they drive it to you or did you get it from the dealer when it, when it I went and did the dealer pickup uh, yep. little mini celebration and it was kind of wild. Like this was early Tesla days. Like I haven't had this for a year and a half when you like my family came there, they made a big deal of it. When you drive out, they like clap and they had this, it was, 
awesome. What what year was it? It was 18 months ago. So it was like a 2008, 2019, 18. So I was, I was 16 and yeah, they gave me like a whole gift bag. I got like a Tesla wallet. I got a Tesla umbrella. I got a Tesla pen. It was amazing. I was like, these are probably, these are probably worth something now. These, uh, these Tesla swag. And I, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a car guy. Like I'm not, um, uh, that's not, you know, I like cool things, but that, that was not of interest to me. I bought it purely based on, uh, and dude, that's, that's Tesla. Like neither am I, I know, I know nothing about cars, but I love my car. Yeah. Love it. You know, I I pre-ordered the, uh, Cybertruck. Dude, me too. Yeah. You know, I actually had my son go online. He's eight years old. My son's a big car nerd. Uh, my son will, will be driving and my son will say, you have to pull over. I said, why? He goes, that is a, that is a Rolls Royce rate. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And so he has all these model, he, you know, he's eight years old. He knows everything about cars. And, um, you know, he, it was his, it was his uh, graduation present from second grade to go online and punch in and say, I want the cyber, like pre-order the cyber truck. So he got to do the, the whole thing. So and get did, the email under delivered to his email address, which I thought was pretty cool. Did you do the uh, single, single motor, dual motor or tri-motor? So I did the dual motor, but I think the triple, the, the single is like, I'm like, okay, I don't know if I should do this, but the triple, I definitely don't need. So I'm not I, anything. I, I pre-ordered the triple because why not? Right, why not? I think it was like zero to 60 in like two seconds. It's just an absolute beast. I'll probably step it down to a double, but yeah, it just, people, people love it or they hate it. And I'm in the, yeah. I'm in the love camp. When it comes yeah. To- I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Tesla. But so uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you this. So there is, um, how does somebody kind of get a chance to you know, work with you or work with, you know, someone in your profile? Because I'd say everybody should, because it's crazy that we have a doctor, an attorney, but we don't have somebody that actually deals with the very financial bloodlines of our family. Uh, just talk a little bit about kind of how you work with clients and and uh, I'll, we'll link up everything in the show notes as well. Yeah. So uh, my company name is Abundo and we're very different than I think um, any financial advisor you've ever heard of in the sense that, um, I used to work at a broker like you, and, um, I just became a little bit, I would say disenfranchised with the fees that are baked into pretty much everything that you have to offer. And, you know, you mentioned doctors, you mentioned accountants, and they all get paid to give you advice. They don't get paid on the surgery. I mean, they don't get paid specifically to do one thing versus another. You just need something done. They do it for you. And it's, it's that price, but financial advising, it was, you know, the predominantly, you know, 99.9% of financial advisors get paid off of a percentage of your assets. And to me, you know, it wasn't any more work to um, manage $2 million than it was $200,000. Right. So why should I get paid that much more um, for that? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so I decided to create a company where we charge a flat, completely transparent monthly fee, $89 a month for individuals, $139 a month for couples. And we give all the financial guidance and advice on, you know, on every single area of your financial life for that fee. Um, and what I found is, you know, not only are we growing like crazy and, you know, bringing on gobs of clients, you know, we're helping our clients actually, um, accomplish your goals quicker because of the fees that they're saving. Yeah. And, you know, we're helping them go to Vanguard or go to Fidelity or go to Schwab and investing in low cost portfolios without that fee. And it, um, people are really, I think, digging the idea. Um, so we do that. And then the other cool thing we do is um, we have a travel um, flavor where I'm a big traveler. My wife and I don't have any kids. So we help our clients maximize their credit card rewards, uh, find flight deals, hotel loyalty, uh, all that stuff. That's so cool. And so does this mean that uh, your clients get to get to actually talk to you or someone on your team, right? It's not a, there it's, it's one-on-one of source. Like they can actually, it's, it's one-on-one full on. Yeah. It's uh, anytime they need us. I mean, most of our clients prefer uh, text email um, versus jumping on a call or, but anytime our clients need us, we are available. It's not like a, you know, you get a certain number of contacts per month. 
We've got some clients that love to do just a 15 minute check-in every month. We've got other clients that once a year, they like to just do a big two hour dive and everything. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, of course, we're always being proactive, reaching out to them as we see opportunities that, you know, they should yeah. be taking advantage of. Yeah, dude, it's, it's um, I love your model, especially being in the, uh, you know, investor world. Uh, it's way cool to see that. And also just knowing that um, I can, I don't have to like, the clock doesn't turn on every time or I can exactly. ask, a, yeah. you know, and, and, and a lot of it is like, if I don't know something, I feel like I need to go to YouTube and then now I have to sort through the, you know, the, the credibility of each of these channels and see if they're affiliate links and, and all of that stuff. So uh, knowing that I can call somebody and, or just flip an email to somebody and be like, Hey, Eric, not urgent. Whenever you get to this, I'm curious whether I should do this, or this or that. Right. And so, um, and I also think the big component for everybody listening is the first step is a really, really, really big and, 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 and onerous and disorganized step. And if you can have someone just solve that first step, solve that first decision, solve that first domino, a lot of the things end up falling into better place just because your first step was correct. And I think having somebody like, you know, Eric, walk, you just guide them on that door number one or door number four uh, helps them yeah. almost create a much better life for them. And, and we, we do for every single prospective client, we do an hour long free consultation just to get to know them, uh, explain a little bit more how we work, give them a couple tips to take away. So we try to make it as um, non-salesy, unoffensive as we possibly can to, you know, encourage people to take that, take that leap. Very cool, man. Hey, I can't thank you enough for being on and dropping a bunch of gems, dude. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com. Dot com.